question for you. And without hesitating, I said, wings in five. <laughs> he said, you know, that's really funny. He said, because at lunch today, he said, I was just given four tickets, second row, center ice for tonight's game. I said, no, I can't go. And in, in all honesty, after hearing Josh in the last hour, I'm so glad to be here. That was, that was um, encouraging, challenging, convicting. Um, really, really blessed by that. Let me just kind of reference a couple things that he said um, the, the illustration of the fact that as a leader, you are the path. Oh, wow. That is so true. And as a leader, you will be criticized. That, that just goes with life, especially when you are in a position of leadership. You are going to be criticized all of the time. It's like taking the logo from the Target store and just putting it on your back and, and walking around asking to be, to be hit over and over. The, the issue isn't will you be criticized. The issue is how will you lead in that criticism? What path will your life take? How will you show others how to respond to criticism. I mean, certain topics nobody really wants to talk about in a breakout session like this, such as humility or meekness, and it, it seems that certain topics just hamstring the very conversation. And the topic of criticism is sort of like that. In fact, when the conference, this conference was being discussed, I read an informational email that was going around back when this conference was in its formative stages, and I noticed that um, Jeff was interacting with a few other people, and he mentioned in that email that he was going to ask me if I would be willing to do a workshop on how to handle criticism in view of the gospel. Well, he hadn't asked me yet. I just read it in the email that he was going to ask me, so it gave me an opportunity to think, and I thought, well, how, you know, how do you respond to that without coming off as being critical? No, Jeff, I really... Don't want to do that. That's not a very good idea, especially since Jeff hadn't heard the seminar yet. I didn't know how he would respond if I was critical to his idea of me doing this on criticism. But it did give me a chance to look at a few things. Um, I, I love this. I love this poster. I think I'm going to get it. It says, "Before you criticize someone else, you need to walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes." <laughs> I like that. One, one thing about a men's conference, you can, you can do some things at a men's conference you just can't do anywhere else, such as this cartoon. I thought this was dynamite. Oh. All right, we'll move on. Okay. We know... That anyone at any time is vulnerable to criticism. Some of 
your earliest fears are probably formed by having to get up in front of people, maybe give a speech, participate in some kind of a play or an event in which you just feel vulnerable and exposed to others. And I believe that the fear of failure, which really is the idol of image, is what holds so many of us hostage from taking initiative or providing direction or taking responsibility or leading in a, in a humble way. We know that when we are in leadership, we will be criticized, and many of us would just rather go to the dentist and get a root canal than go through that. I saw a little article this, uh, this morning on the Internet where Michelle Obama was being criticized because she was wearing somebody said $540 tennis shoes and you know the statement was well how can somebody in this economy do something like that and they don't know the whole story they don't know if some somebody gave her those shoes and you know there was a promise to wear that it, it's just that it doesn't matter what you do when you're in front of people taking any kind of leadership, you're going to be criticized. But brothers, when God made you a man, he made you a leader. That goes with being a man. You are a leader. The issue isn't whether or not you're a leader. The issue is what, what kind of a leader are you? Addressing this particular topic has made me acutely aware of some of the idols that are in my own heart. I have been, like you, the recipient of a number of criticisms. So it's not a subject that I'm addressing because I have mastered this. I wake up in the middle of the night at times trying to work through issues, replaying conversations, or anticipating conflict and conversations. And the entire process forces me to go back to the gospel. And from this fresh context, I'm challenged again and again to see how deeply do I really believe this. And sometimes the answer is very, very painful to admit to myself. But the heart of this conference is to help you and me see how the gospel, how the cross is central, it's foundational, it's pivotal to everything that we do. Christ, the cross, the gospel is both the spring, the fountainhead, the source of joy. It is the governing attribute that that, that qualifies, that infects, that permeates, that defines everything that we are, everything that we do do is a reflection of everything that we are in Christ. So when we're talking about leadership issues, we as men, as followers of Christ, have to talk about gospel-centered leadership. And as followers of Christ, 
The gospel defines all that we do. And so, what I'd like to do right here at the beginning, just for a few minutes, is take this issue of criticism and try to connect it to the big picture of the gospel. If you have your notes, there are uh, some notes that are in the blue notebook, and you can follow along the outline, most, much of which is filled in for you, but it does give you hope that there is an end to this. But at the same time, there are some things for you to fill in toward the end. So what we're looking at right now is section one, and that is what is, what is the big picture? And, how does, and I want to show you how criticism fits in to God's plan to making you more and more like Jesus Christ. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, as Josh was mentioning in the previous session, repenting of your sin, turning and trusting in Christ, that is justification. Justification is the heart of the gospel. It is the truth that when I turn, repent of my sin and I trust in Christ alone, and because he lived for me and died for me, my sin is credited to him, his righteousness is credited to me. Justification is a point in time which changes everything for the person who's come to faith in Christ. And the gospel that saves us from sin's penalty is saving us from sin's power and will save us from sin's presence. So if you become a follower of Jesus Christ and someone asks you, Sam, have you have you been saved? You could answer that question in one of three ways, all of which would be true. You could say, yes, I have been saved. And that would be true in respect to sin's penalty. You could also answer that question and say, yes, I am being saved. That is what progressive sanctification is about. That is what Paul was referring to in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the process by which God is working on us, making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And then there is the answer you could give, yes, one day I will be saved. That's glorification, when I'll be saved from sin's presence. So, progressive sanctification is the process by which the Spirit of God is conforming me along with other members of the body of Christ to become just like Christ. Now that sounds wonderful. And most of us would say, ah, I can't wait. I can't wait for that day in which I am like Christ, when I am fully saved from sin's power, from sin's presence. But criticism is one of the tools that the Spirit of God uses to help me become more like Christ. There's no shortcut. There's no easy road. And you will be the recipient of constructive criticism and destructive criticism. Constructive criticism is designed to help build you up. It's, it's, it's given from a person who wants to improve you, who wants to correct you. In fact, 
constructive criticism is basically what the New Testament word nuthateo means. It's a, it's a word that means to warn, to advise, to instruct, to admonish. It's a word that is translated as admonish in Acts 2, 30, 20, verse 31. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 4.14. It's translated in the ESV as warning in Colossians 1.28. It's also used in Colossians 3.16. And in the Colossians 1.28 passage, it is particularly clear that the purpose of this admonishing is to present everyone perfect in Christ. And what Paul is saying is that my relationship with people is to warn them. It's to constructively criticize them so that they will be built up and look like Christ. If I always plug my ears every time somebody criticizes me, I am attempting to ignore one of the tools of the Spirit of God that is graciously given to help me look like Christ. Now, destructive criticism, on the other hand, is designed to tear you down. It's designed to rip you up. It's harder to handle than constructive criticism, but just because the other person is dishing it out with a malicious motive, and they may have sinful desires and goals that are driving it, and you happen to be at that moment just the recipient of all that person's vomit. You know what I mean? You ever been in one of those situations where somebody just walks in and just pukes all over you? And you want to say, man, that's not fair. And Satan loves to use those things as an effort to render you ineffective. But over and over and over, progressive sanctification is watching God take the enemies of our soul and the thieves of our joy and turn them into the tools for our sanctification. God loves to take what Satan and others intend as being for my harm and use them for his glory and for my joy. So, there's basically two points that I just want to drive home for you in this session. Two, two big ideas. And, here in this, what's the big picture? And the first is how I handle criticism. How I respond to criticism is a current gauge. It's like a meter that reflects how much I'm believing and applying the gospel. Stopped over at my mom's this afternoon before I came over here because she's not getting any cold air out of the air conditioner in her car. So I got some coolant, got a gauge, got a hose, got it on there. And the brothers from my church are just absolutely amazed because they know it, me in an open hood is usually not a good. But I cleared all of this with Bob Buholtz before I did it. And so he step by step laid it out for me what to do. And I could tell by the temperature of the air that was coming out of the coolant system, whether or not the Freon was getting in there. It was an accurate measurement. What's going on inside of my spirit 
when somebody criticizes me, it's a very good indicator of how much at that moment I am really believing the gospel. That's painful to admit because so often when I'm criticized, I want to rise up and defend myself or I want to pout and go into another room and sulk about it and try to find pity from somebody else. So how I handle criticism, brothers, how you handle criticism is a gauge. It's a fresh, it is a current gauge that reflects how much you're believing and applying the gospel. Secondly, criticism is a great opportunity to become like Christ. Because criticism is an opportunity to deal with two areas that we are in constant need of growth. And those areas are humility and meekness. Humility is what I tend to grow in when I take time to look at the law of God and my sin. Josh, I so appreciated the overview that you gave, um, taking us through a good bit of the book of Exodus and then, and then into Numbers. The law that God has given is such a good means by which we can see how far, far short we fall of God's standard. That is intended to bring about humility in our lives. Meekness is what I tend to grow in when I take time to consider the holiness of God. So let me ask you something. When you're being criticized, how do you tend to respond? Are you one of those guys that blows up and fights back? And, and you launch such a verbal assault that everybody just, they don't dare say anything to you ever again. Or are you one of those guys who tends to just get defensive and pout and withdraw? And you give the silent treatment to those. In the body of Christ, we have to have the freedom to be able to speak to each other's hearts and to hear each other and correct each other, admonish, learn, without being defensive, because God has given us the body as the means to help us grow. All right, that's the big idea. So let's dig into this a little bit. Section number two. Who do you think you are? Has this ever happened to you? I'll come home from a particular challenging day and my wife will say, I mean, just walk in the door. And she will say, you left the, the closet door open again this morning, and you know what? You didn't pull the shades down in the family room like I asked you. Do You do remember me asking you to pull those down, don't you? 
And if you don't take care of that bee's nest out by the, next to the gutter, I'm going to call an exterminator. He's going to cost a whole lot more than you, but don't complain to me because I have asked you to do that several times. And by the way, don't leave your shoes on the mat. I haven't vacuumed that yet. Right then, there is a war that's breaking out in my heart. And actually, I've probably been providing ammunition for it as, as I've gone through maybe a counseling session that day, or perhaps you've seen some guy at work who's a total jerk, and you have thought to yourself, you know what, compared to that guy, you know, my wife just needs to see that guy. If she would just spend 10 minutes with that guy, she would be so amazed at what an incredible guy she has for a husband. And as I think on that, and I, as, I, as I meditate on what a great gift I am to my wife, and, and I'm thinking of how I'm going to be received when I walk in the door. I mean, if she just heard what I'd heard. She would be just waiting at the door, wanting to embrace me and affirm me, and of course, affectionately kiss me. Absolutely. And as I play that scene over and over in my mind, as I, as I drive home, my heart is drawn to that. I'm a really pretty good guy. My wife needs to appreciate me. And the same challenge faces us in our view of God. By his grace, if you're able to do some things for him, anytime you're involved in some kind of a ministry, anytime you do anything that's meaningful in the lives of others, it's so easy to think, hey, that's pretty good, wasn't it? I, yeah, I, did, I, I didn't do too bad of a job. In fact, did you hear what that person over there just said? They... They appreciated that. Man, I wish other people would hear what they just said. They, they appreciated that. Say it again. They appreciated that. A few years ago, we had a guest speaker at the church. And after he got done and the service was, was over, I was standing right down here next to him in a gentleman from the church came up, and I'm standing right next to the guest speaker, and the gentleman says to the guest speaker right next to me, that was the best sermon this church has ever heard in years. <laughs> he was not joking. <laughs> he was... And, and, and it was at this point, I think I'd been in the church about 14 years, you know, at this time. And I, 14 years, I haven't gotten through to this guy. 14 years, he has, you know, just been every opportunity, it seems, just mm, in my back. And it's so easy to think that as a leader, you know, I expect consideration, respect, Appreciation, affirmation, trust, obedience. 
I expect my decisions to be approved, my kids to listen to me, my wife to affirm me, my opinions to be accepted, my presence to be noticed, my directives to be carried out. I expect that hard work will earn me the right to lead without all those nitpicking questions and, and that faithfulness and consistency will earn me trust. I expect that sacrifice and past successes will earn me enough relational capital that I'll finally at one point be above criticism and immune from disrespect. What planet do you think I'm from? Will you look with me in Luke chapter 17? And I want to try to answer this question, who do you think you are? In Luke 17, Christ is talking to his disciples. I'm jumping down to verse number 7, and he says, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Wow! What an awesome job you did today, huh? That's the idea. Come along now. Sit down and eat. Is that what he'd say? Or would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Who do you think you are? I am an unworthy servant. That is not what my heart tells me. My heart tells me I deserve respect. I deserve affirmation. I deserve appreciation. I'm the husband. I'm the dad. I'm a leader. I've been a faithful friend, doggone it. I'm an unworthy servant, is the truth. And as a follower of God, it's not even rational to think that after I've done my task, And none of us does that perfectly. That the performing of any work is somehow meritorious and makes God my debtor. I'm an unworthy servant to whom God owes me nothing. He doesn't owe me respect. And the reason why criticism is so difficult to handle is because I have a heart that wants to be perfectly unbothered and unchallenged. And when I listen to my heart and I fail to preach the gospel to my heart, then I forget the very foundational truths of the gospel. So in order to handle criticism in a way that reflects Christ, we have to be willing to do some surgery and look at the issues that lay underneath our hearts. So here are some. I'll go through them pretty quickly. Number one. I am a sinner who deserves the eternally righteous wrath of God. That's what I deserve. 
anything this side of hell is grace. Anything this side of hell is grace. Criticism is this side of hell. I deserve hell. I do not deserve to be understood. I do not deserve to be respected. I do not deserve to be affirmed. I do not deserve to be appreciated. I deserve hell. I'm an unworthy servant. And what did my Lord do? He waited on his own disciples and washed their feet. Gospel-centered leaders are humble leaders. Gospel-centered leaders should be servant leaders. However, a servant leader does not mean all servant and no leader. Brothers, you have to lead. You have to make decisions. You have to take charge. You have to provide direction. You have to find solutions. But you don't do it for the sake of your name. You do it for the benefit of those who have been entrusted to your care. And the truth is we all struggle with truly loving those under our care. I'm not only a sinner who deserves the eternally righteous wrath of God. I live with and among sinners. Sin is a fundamental failure to trust God. And it is not only a failure to trust God, but we trust ourselves. And that has enormous implications for leadership. The people that you are trying to lead are sinners like you who have rejected God's leadership. You think they're going to accept yours? His is perfect, and they rejected that. Yours isn't perfect. You think they're going to accept yours without criticism? When you are criticized, your motives may be questioned. That hurts. But the truth is, sometimes you and I have wrong motives. But even if your motives are fairly pure, whatever that is, they will never in this life be as pure as God's, and that yet his leadership was still rejected. Who do you think you are? And what did you expect? And the people whom you lead will not be able to evaluate you or life in the proper way. They are sinners also. They are vulnerable to external and personal problems. And therefore, I should not expect to be understood, affirmed, or appreciated. I should expect criticism from people, particularly people who do not care at all about the things of God. That's what persecution is about. We are to rejoice when that takes place. In fact, there are certain people that when I'm being criticized by them, I think, good, okay, I'm on the right track. But I should also expect criticism from people who misunderstand the things of God. Very recently, I was in a phone conversation with a person. It was a person I was seeking to, to love and shepherd in a right direction over an issue. And I was, for almost 60 minutes, pleading with this person going back over the same points, trying to get them to see the issue from God's perspective. And toward the end of the conversation, the person said, you're bashing me. 
And there it was. It, it just welled up. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Bashing you? And, and in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm going through all of this defense saying, how many people would be this patient with you on the phone for 60 minutes and would lovingly try to step you through all of this stuff? And the response that this person had just revealed just the level of self-centeredness that was still present in my own heart. And I had to go back to the gospel again. Gospel-centered leaders are patient. Number three, Christ is a bigger Savior than I'm a sinner. That's the good news. Gospel-centered leaders love Christ. We love his kingdom more than anything. Therefore, we do not have to defend ourselves. It's not about us anyway. So how I need to change my thinking is that anything that helps me love Christ more is good. It matters more of what God knows about me than what others think about me. Number four, I have not arrived yet. That's what progressive sanctification is about. We're on the journey. We're not there yet. Already I'm justified. Not yet am I fully sanctified. Already I'm redeemed. and Not yet am I perfect. My insight, my wisdom, my advice, my leadership will not be perfect. I'm going to mess up. I don't have all of the answers. I don't have to have all of the answers. Gospel-centered leaders do not have to be the hero. Number five, I need others, and others need me to become like Christ. And what God does is he uses relationships and, to expose our weaknesses and failures so that we can repent for the sake of his name. That's why you need to be part of a church. It takes a church because life in the body is absolutely necessary along with the spirit and the word to conform us to Christ. So I should expect life and relationships with other believers to be the most thrilling and the most difficult relationships in the world because so much is at stake. The glory of Christ. Why take the risk for the glory of Christ? If we want to grow, I will love others in spite of their weakness. If I want to grow, I will listen to others in spite of their bias. If I want to grow, I will seek to speak to others in spite of their response. Gospel-centered leaders have to be involved in the lives of others. But being involved will expose me to criticism that is designed by God to help me. And even the criticism that comes from somebody who wants to hurt me and tear me down, a sovereign God is in charge of that as well. And he will take that and use that if I respond to it properly to help me know the fellowship of his sufferings. Because it doesn't matter how much you are accused of unjustly, you will never be criticized more than Christ, ever. And Paul said, what, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, that I may know him in the Fellowship of his sufferings. We like the power of the resurrection part, but the fellowship of his sufferings is just as critical. When you look at some of the greatest leaders in the scriptures, every one of them went through incredible criticism. Noah, Moses, Samuel, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, Peter, Paul. It's all part of it. 
Number three, section three. There's three types of destructive criticism in the New Testament. Those are the things we probably encounter and find the most difficult. How did these men handle it? In Acts chapter 4, I'll go through this quickly. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples were being criticized by those who hate God. Thrown into prison, they were beaten, and they showed us a great response. If you're beaten for the sake of Christ, yeah. Okay? That, that, that is a joy. What I find amazing is criticism from those who claim to be believers. That's Philippians 1. Remember Paul is in prison? Paul's in prison. Philippians 1. You want to turn there real quick? I got just a few seconds left here. I find this astounding. Paul is in prison. He says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Yes! Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Who, because Paul is in prison and, there's, and, they're, and they're, just trying to, they're just trying to mash it in on him, trying to kick him while he's down. No good deed will go unpunished kind of a thing. And how does Paul respond? I mean, wouldn't you want to say, hey, get those guys. You know what they're doing? What does he say? Yeah, it's all right. Verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. They're trying to get me worked up. It only adds to my joy. Wow. You turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. How do you handle criticism from those to whom you are close to? I think Paul gives us a great outline for it in chapter 4. I'm looking at verse number 6. He is responding to all of the accusations that many of the believers in the church of Corinth have been leveling against him, the criticism about how his speech and his presence really isn't all that impressive. And he says in verse 6, Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. They were having a personality cult. And what does Paul do? He thinks it through. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. He's applied the gospel to his own life. That's what he has done. He is stuck with the word. Do not go beyond what is written. 
And what does he say in verse 7? He's talking about the gospel of grace. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And then he goes on in verses 8 through 14 to speak the truth in love. Finally, I conclude with this. Here's some action steps. Action steps to help cultivate your heart for the battle. Every day you're going to be receiving criticism. What can you do to be prepared to take this criticism that is intended perhaps by some to tear you apart and grow from it into being more and more like Christ? You can't be unprepared. You need to start your day with the gospel. That's why we read and pray the gospel every day. By the way, in the book table, there's a great little book by C.J. Mahaney called Living the Cross-Centered Life. I highly recommend that. And he unpacks this point at the end of that book very well. Secondly, study good books on the gospel. As Josh was saying, every day you've got to be near the gospel. And number three, study men and how men in the Bible handled the gospel, or how they handled criticism. Go back and look at Noah. Go back and look at Moses. Go back and look at David and Daniel and these men and see how they responded, and especially Christ. And then I would also like to quickly mention a good source that I have found is studying biographies on men and how they have handled adversity and criticism. The life and death of the Puritan Christopher Love is is just an overwhelming story of faithfulness. It's also a love story. It's letters between from him to his wife while he is in prison, awaiting execution for the sake of the gospel. John Piper has done a real service to the church in giving us stories of the biographies of guys like John Bunyan and William Cowper and um, David Brainerd, all of these men who persevered. At the end of this book by MacArthur, Ashamed of the Gospel, he does a biography of Charles Spurgeon and the downward um, controversy that uh, he was in, involved in there in England and how Spurgeon, who we consider to be the prince of preachers, endured at the end of his life an incredible time of criticism that was almost unparalleled. Thabiti Anya Buile, uh, pastors down in uh, First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman, uh, has, has done a real service to the church in um, this book called The Faithful Preacher. And uh, it's, it's about three pioneering African-American pastors. And uh, we don't always get to hear about some of the heritage that we have standing on the shoulders of faithful African-American pastors. And I've been really blessed with the life of Lemuel Hayes, who pastored in Vermont back in the 1800s, and it wasn't easy in those days, brothers. For 30 years, he pastored the same church, and at the end of those 30 years, ended up being dismissed, similar to like Jonathan Edwards. How do these brothers do it? How do they endure? Also, the roots of endurance. These these are good works that, that you can study and see how God has cultivated the joy of these men in the midst of of, of, of criticism and controversy. And finally, some action steps that you can take in the battle. When somebody walks up to me and they say, you know what, i got a bone to pick with you. I've tried to develop the habit of saying to them, 
Just one? You only got one? Because if they really knew my heart, if they really knew how sinful I am, they'd have a whole lot more to complain about. And I say that not so much for their benefit, I say that for my benefit. Because it's a reminder to me that if a person comes up and they've only, and they've only got one complaint, well, that's a grace. Secondly, when you're in that conversation, pray. When the person's in your face and they're complaining about something and they're not, pray. Pray that you can be an instrument of the gospel. It's not about you. Why is this person hurting so much and is just puking all over you right now? What in their world is so deep and so out of sorts? How can you be an instrument of grace to them? Number three, be thoughtful. Ask questions for clarification. So in other words, if I understand you right, what you're saying is, did I, did I get that right? And just the fact that you will listen and take their criticism seriously, that, that is an act of love that you're giving to that person. Number four, be slow to speak. In fact, you may even ask for time to respond. You know, before I say something to you, give me a few minutes. Maybe I'll get back with you tomorrow. And by the way, as a side note, don't respond in email. Emails are awful to solve problems with. They make them worse. Number five, confess what you need to confess. To speak the truth in love when someone's wrong. I conclude with 1 Peter chapter 2. For it is commendable, verse 19, if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord Jesus, we have an opportunity when being criticized to understand more deeply the reality of the cross. We have an opportunity to understand more personally your heart 
and we acknowledge that so often that is the furthest thing from our minds. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you will be pleased to direct your spirit to freshly apply the gospel in our hearts in such a deep and profound way that we are even prepared to hear the criticisms of others and rejoice in the opportunity to grow and benefit from it so that you are more visible, you are glorified, and in so being, our joy is enhanced. For the sake of Christ we pray, amen.